Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs trade views on rich people buying their way into space. We expose that Canadian politician in more on-camera hijinks. We talk about the pros and cons of electric vehicles. We report on a special kind of prize for one lucky New York four-year-old. And we congratulate the oldest person ever to go into space. The Old Dog's Conversation is with Bill Seavey, an author, B&B owner, dwelling innovator, and much more. Stay with us. Well, Paul, Hmm. I guess it's time to ask you, what's on your mind? Well, do you know, Jim, we had a pod nugget about an 82-year-old woman who's going up on one of those short flights into space. Yep. And it started me thinking about, you know, we grew up on Buck Rogers and that kind of thing. and. Wouldn't it be kind of neat to finally travel into space and then you realize there's a $100,000 price tag? <laughs> At least. Yeah. That would be cheap. Yes. Well, that's standby. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, is it worth that to you? Well, let's say you had unlimited means. Mm-hmm. You know, enjoy that fantasy for a while. <laughs> it, it, it's such a short flight. Yeah. Yeah, and you compare that to your fantasies. You know, when you were a kid and you were thinking, uh, you go out in a spaceship and you go to the ends of the galaxies and beyond, and uh, it's a magnificent adventure, right? You go up in a spacecraft for 15 minutes, I guess it is, and come back down again. You're up there just long enough to throw up, is what it amounts to, right? (laughs) Oh, I can do that on the ground. Yeah, well, and I could charge you (laughs) $100,000. But isn't that the thing, is right now, how many people get to say that, who are not professional astronauts, to say, I went up in space? Yeah. Uh, I still think it's a little outrageous. It does seem that there are people who are affluent that are going to take advantage of it because, hey, it's an easy thing to talk about at the cocktail party the next day. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember when NASA used to be glamorous, right? I mean, it was like they were the cowboys, you know, the Mm -hmm. astronauts. This is kind of cheapening the whole concept, I think. Well, in a way, I suppose so. But you know that people of means have always been willing to pay for a privilege that is not afforded to other people without means. And so this is no different than that. It's just that, yes, by association with the glamour and history of space exploration, both real and fantasized, it it seems so cheap. Cheap meaning $100,000 is cheap? Or cheap meaning it's cheap in the concept? Yes. Oh, okay, great. I, I think if I even had the money, I probably wouldn't do it now. If there was a cruise to the moon mm-hmm. for $100,000, I would try to get that money together, I think. Okay. But for 15 minutes of yeah. weightlessness, nah. Well, there's always something about the ability to say, I was the first. 
Well, yeah, but except you aren't. <laughs> you follow all of the astronauts yeah. in the past. Yeah, but um, I was the first non-astronaut. The first Be- nudge. The mice. I was the first nudge to pay $100,000. <laughs> well, besides the mice and the chimps and all of the others. <laughs> That's right. Get in line behind them. Sure. Because well, they were I, actually trained. I don't know. I, I suppose I would love to go to the moon. That seems so romantic. But I would always be afraid. I mean, what really is on the dark side? Does anybody really know? I mean, it's dark. It is. So you're going to insist on a nightlight if you go to the moon? I'm something. I mean, what if Ming the Magnificent is lurking on the dark side of the moon? Oh, Jim, I don't think you're qualified for space travel. As we reported in our last episode, a Canadian member of Parliament was caught naked on video during a virtual meeting of the House of Commons. And a month later, he made naughty news again. This pod nugget is from Sky News for May 29th, 2021. William Amos insisted that the first incident in April of this year was unintentional, explaining, My video was accidentally turned on as I was changing into my work clothes after a jog. Well, that's understandable. It could happen to anyone who forgot that their camera was left on while they changed clothes in front of that camera. Except that it sort of happened again a month later. And here's his apology. Last night, while attending House of Commons proceedings virtually in a non-public setting, I urinated without realizing I was on camera. Well, accidental and not visible to the public, this was unacceptable, and I apologize unreservedly. I think this is what an objective observer would call a trend. Uh Uh-huh. There are two obvious solutions. Mr. Amos should never, ever multitask during a virtual meeting of Parliament. If that is impossible, he should put tape over the lens of his camera so he can attend meetings clothing optional. Problem solved. Yeah. There seems to be a rush to move to electric vehicles before we have the technology perfected. Currently, to dependably recharge, you need a really long extension cord. This item is from NationalGeographic.com for June 9th, 2021. Electric vehicles, or EVs, are gaining in popularity, but there are some issues that need to be resolved before it becomes the dominant form of transportation. The first issue is battery technology. Current battery technology allows for about 200 miles between charges in an EV. This means it is not currently a good road trip vehicle. It's more suited to short trips where it can recharge overnight in your garage. Another issue is charging speed. Typically, it takes at least 30 minutes to get 80% charged with the fastest charging stations out there. We're used to filling our gas tanks in a few minutes and then get back on the road. Experts say that in 5 to 10 years, much faster charge times are possible, but current charge times could add hours to a trip. Fast charging carries some other challenges. Lithium batteries can overheat, degrading the battery and even causing a fire. Fast charging will also place an added burden on an aging electrical grid. Rolling blackouts seem to happen every year during peak electrical demand. We can expect more of the same as people plug in their cars. Electrical vehicles are the future of transportation. 
All automobile manufacturers are feverishly working on improving the technology. But for today, there are limitations to EVs that will keep most people guzzling gas for the next decade. From time to time, we like to put the vocabulary and patience of my co-host, Jim Conlon, to the test. That's me. The current challenge is words only New Englanders will understand. From the Word Genius website, are you ready, Jim? Never. First word is carriage. What is a carriage in New England? Hmm. Well, maybe it's a trolley car. No, not no. even close. It's something that a person would push. Ah, a baby buggy? No. A hot dog wagon? Okay, this is getting way out of hand. <laughs> it's an item you would find in a grocery store. Ah, grocery cart. Yes, they call it a carriage. I don't know why. Here's your next one. What is a clicker in New England? A clicker. Is that the thing that you um, change the channel on a TV with? Oh, outstanding. You yeah? got it the first time. All right. Now, what is a grinder? Oh, I know what a grinder is. That's a, a meat sub. Uh, it usually has uh, beef or chicken in it. It's a kind of submarine sandwich. All right. Too much information there, Jim. You obviously had a great relationship with a sandwich with at one point. Only it's not grinder. It's grinder. Ah, grinder. Grinder. Okay, I tried to avoid doing any of the Boston accents, but what is a tag sale? Tag sale. Oh, well, isn't that uh, like articles of clothing in a store that have been marked down and they put a tag on it with a new no, price? No, not even warm. No. Tag sale is something you might find in a neighborhood. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Like a, a garage sale? That's it, exactly. Ah, Here's okay. your last one. What are leaf Peepers. Leaf peepers. Uh, they're kind of frog, aren't they? That comes out in the spring. <laughs> well, if they aren't, they should be. No, no, no. Leaf peepers are people. What about it? Oh, they are they the ones that come out for the fall color? That's it, exactly. Yeah. The tourists that clog yeah. up your highways right. and, and eat all of your... Uh, Grinders. Grinders. <laughs> <laughs> this is a cautionary tale. Someone still in preschool should not be ordering things on Amazon. This pod nugget is from Sky News for May 8, 2021. Noah is a four-year-old who lives in New York City. He has an undying love for a cartoon character called SpongeBob SquarePants. Now, if you don't know SpongeBob, you really need to catch up on your pop culture. It's the highest rated show on Nickelodeon and has generated more than $13 billion in merchandising revenue. One such merchandising item is a SpongeBob SquarePants ice cream bar that is available on Amazon by the case. Here's how Noah, SpongeBob, and Amazon ended up in the same news story. The four-year-old managed to get access to the Amazon website and ordered some SpongeBob ice cream treats. To be specific, he ordered 51 cases at a cost of $2,618.85. Since they had already been delivered, Amazon refused the pleas of Noah's <laughs> mother to return the ice cream bars, which by now were rapidly changing from a solid to a liquid <laughs> state. Ah, but there is a happy ending. A GoFundMe site raised over $14,000. Mm. Once the ice cream bill is paid, the remainder will go towards Noah's education, which we assume will be a college degree in 
marketing. Wally Funk was at the top of her class in 1961 as a member of the Mercury 13 Women's Astronaut Program. As you probably noticed, that program never got off the ground. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for July 1st, 2021. The Mercury 13 were 13 women who went through the same rigorous training as the all-male Mercury 7 program until the parallel women's program was canceled. When NASA finally opened its doors to women in 1976, Wally Funk applied three times and was rejected three times. So she went on with her life. And what a life she's had. She was the first female Federal Aviation Administration inspector, the first female National Transportation Safety Board air safety investigator. She has flown 19,600 hours and taught more than 3,000 people to fly. And finally... At the age of 82, Wally Funk will be the oldest woman to reach space. She was invited by Jeff Bezos to join him on the Blue Origin first crewed space flight in late July. Does she think she deserves it? Well, of course. In an Instagram video, she proclaimed, Everything that the FAA has, I got a license for. I like to do things that nobody has ever done, and I can outrun you. <laughs> that a way to howl at the moon, Wally. We're betting you'll be the oldest to howl on, on the, moon the moon someday. Yeah. <laughs> Self-described as living in the 70s life, Bill Seavey has been many things. Reporter, photographer, housing innovator, B&B owner, and author. Bill reflects on his life so far and what's ahead. Well, to start us out, we are just about the same age, the three of us, which means we are children of the 60s. Tell me, how has that impacted your choices in life? Well, I've been uh, kind of involved in some countercultural movements uh, back then. And, you know, I moved to uh, smaller towns, uh, got away from the urban rat race and kind of made a business out of it, actually, called the Greener Pastures Institute at one time which kind of had some nationwide attention. Um, basically, I wanted to live a more rural lifestyle, which is what a lot of my generation wanted to do, wanted to go back to the land and uh, raise veggies and get away from the rat race in general, So, uh, which I did. <laughs> but part of the uh, motivation for that was um, having uh, worked two summers as a college student in uh, Yellowstone National Park. Oh. If you'd done like that, yeah. you know, you're going to be impacted possibly forever. So uh, I'm living in a small town right now on the Central California coast. And most recently, my wife and I, uh, we ran a, a bed and breakfast and a Airbnb. Uh, then the pandemic came along and everybody shut down pretty much. So, but we're, we're doing fine. Living the mid-70s life. <laughs> uh, you have had a bunch of different careers. I'm kind of curious about your, your bed and breakfast work. Are you going to reopen again? or Probably not full-time. Uh, I think we'll continue to do that very part-time. We don't really need to do it full-time. So, But it's been great. I mean, we've seen thousands of people, met thousands of people, and... Uh, you know, they've been pretty much happy with us. People seem to be happy because this is a really wonderful environment. Well, Bill, if you don't mind, I'd like to backtrack a little bit. You had mentioned that you spent a couple of summers at Yellowstone, right? 
Right. And uh, you also spent a summer, as I read, uh, at a different location of national importance, and that would be further east, around Woodstock, New York. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that that had a pretty big impression on you as well. Do you want to talk it, about it, that? It, it definitely did. Um, you know, I was working in New York City in journalism at the time. I, I had an internship out of uh, uh, the University of Iowa to go work on magazines in New York. And one of the magazines for six weeks was Newsweek. And uh, I actually got to take some photographs for Newsweek when I was published in the, in the newspaper. I mean, like only 20 years old or whatever. But uh, then I heard that uh, there was going to be a big uh, music festival in upstate New York. I went to the editors and I said, hey, can I go there and cover it for you? And they said, no, nah, no, nah, it's probably just going to be some little concert or something. <laughs> so I said, oh, well, screw you, but I'm going there anyway. And I had two cameras uh, because at that time I was very interested in uh, photography. And it was very much a happening thing. And uh, I could see that. And I photographed the heck out of uh, the concert for two days. I didn't stay the third day because it was getting to be a muddy mess. <laughs> there was big rainfall and it was getting to be a muddy mess. I don't even remember where I slept. <laughs> I can't remember. But it was fun. Yeah. And yes, it did influence me. And I eventually I, I returned to the establishment. <laughs> you can call it that. <laughs> but I have done a variety of things. I've started a number of businesses and with my wife, of course, started this bed and breakfast, which has probably been the most successful of all. You know, you, you know you've been a very, uh, I would say, successful writer. But I'm curious about one five-year span when you were a professional resume writer. Who knew that was a job? Tell me about that. <laughs> How do you find out all this stuff? Did I actually tell you? <laughs> oh, Bill, you've got it's published. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> this is all. This is all from your website. Okay, so that professional resume writing was uh, was actually a, a one of my better uh, self employment gigs. I moved to Oregon at one time, also living in a small town. And when I moved to this town, Bend, Oregon, at the time I moved up there, Californians were finding well, there was a recession, and they were leaving. They were actually leaving, and they were moving back to California or wherever, and they're just turned out to be a great need for uh, job counseling and resume writing. I had uh, done some resume writing in the past, but yeah, I basically created a, uh, a whole business uh, just devoted to resume writing. And I, and I wrote you know, a couple thousand resumes over the course of six years or something like that. Well, I think like a lot of writers, y you do different occupations, but your core is you're a writer. That's what your focus is. Well, yeah, uh, Eleanor just handed me a couple of my the books that I've written, and uh, I'll show them to you on the screen there. Uh, this is for all our listeners, Moving to Small Town America and Crisis yeah. Investing and Entrepreneuring. Yeah, so Moving to Small Town America was, was formerly published by a Chicago uh, real estate company. It was successful, and uh, you can still get a hold of them, uh, you know, used copies on Amazon. And uh, crisis investing and entrepreneuring happened after the 2008 or, or recession. I thought yeah. there would be a need for a book that would help people in housing and getting jobs and saving money and so forth and so on. Uh, well, yeah. Bill, how did you become an expert on crisis investing? That seemed to sort of pop up out of the blue. Well, uh, crisis investing was, was based on 
my own investing that I had done, uh, you know, over time. My dad was a, an investor in the stock market, and so I picked up a few tips from him. We're on the verge of uh, a homeless crisis as uh, people are going to be evicted from their homes. I know that's been a concern for you. That's uh, uh, something of interest to you. And you also had a period in your life when you were homeless. Is that correct? That is correct. And um, I attempted to build a, uh, a house on five acres of, of, of land in, in eastern Washington state that I'd purchased. And uh, it was a kind of an ecological community where they had uh, structures that were cheaper to build, but also environmentally responsible. Uh, examples being uh, geodesic domes, mm-hmm. earth-sheltered uh, housing. But what I was very interested in, and they had a workshop on straw bale house building. Now, really? You guys have never heard yeah. about that. But straw bale houses are actually in code in California, as well as elsewhere. But at the time, they were innovative and different. And, you know, not, not every county was willing to accept them. And as it turned out, the building official uh, turned me down at this uh, community, and I basically became homeless. Now, I did have mm-hmm. a, a motor home which I tooled around in for, for a while uh, with a solar panel on it. Um, but it was kind of a big scandal. It actually was in the front page of a, a local newspaper there that they turned down this project. Did you ever consult with the three little pigs on that project? Yes, I did. And they really didn't know what the heck they were t- talking about, especially the one that thinks that they could blow the house down. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you got me curious now. Um, uh, bales of straw, and what is the exterior? The exterior generally is concrete stucco. If anybody's curious and wants to see some pictures of the house, which I did, I did essentially complete. If you they want to see pictures, they can go to askaprepper.com dot hmm. and just put in a straw bale house. So, what is the expected life of a straw house? You know, as long as the, the bales don't get wet. Uh, and start to rot in, inside of the stucco, and there's no earthquakes to knock the uh, the, <laughs> the house down. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, fifty, hundred years. I mean, uh, I don't know. It's it's a strong, strong, sturdy structure. You're talking about bales that are like uh, three feet wide and two feet deep, mm. and they're uh, put in re- with rebar. So uh, it's a very strong structure. Yeah, definitely the the, the you can't blow it over. <laughs> uh, you also have an interest in tiny homes, correct? As as a possible solution for homelessness, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, here in California, and particularly the area I live in, there's been all these debates about how to uh, develop affordable housing. And I think straw bale is one a possible approach. But uh, there are builders uh, locally that are building tiny homes. And now they have a law to cite them on people's property as ADUs, alternative dwelling units, I think it is. Hmm. Well, Bill, looking ahead now, it seems that you've really enjoyed what you have done. Uh, What do you see looking ahead for you and Eleanor the next 10 years, let's say? Uh, Well, we need to stay alive, that's for sure. We don't want to be on a medical merry-go-round. Yeah. You seem to have prescription of staying active and nobody's going to catch you or something of that sort. You do you do make sure you stay active, right? Both you and your wife, exercise, right. tennis. Yeah. Would you recommend that for people our age? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you want to assess, you know, if you're not sure what you can do, uh, I mean, you don't want to go out on a tennis court and, you know, start whacking the ball if you, you know, never played tennis before. I, I, I do write a, a column in the local newspaper uh, on being active over 50 and so forth. And, well, thanks again, Bill, for taking the time to talk with us. We certainly enjoyed it. And uh, took a while to get together with you, but it was worth it. I know. Very elusive, and you know. And, <laughs> you, you are, know. yes. The Howard Hughes of the area. Huh? <laughs> well, I, won't call, I won't say that. But <laughs> like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We could always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned. Keep howling at the moon and be sure to get yourself and your family vaccinated.